If all that's important to you and all that defines you is a struggle for legal tender, you're going to be really miserable. The Uniformer. Insights and interviews into the people and companies that drive the markets for uniforms, image apparel, and public safety equipment. The Uniformer is a production of the North American Association of Uniform Manufacturers and Distributors, the NAUMD. Hello. I'm sitting here with Phil Newman, who is the president and owner and, I am told, largest shareholder of Cobmex. Phil and I have known each other quite a long time in the uniform industry, and I am eager to hear a bit of the origin story, Phil, and uh, uh, perhaps talk about you know this great company that you've you've built. And there's been many changes over the years, and there's I'm certain many changes to come. But um, let me just start with a with a easy question for you there, Phil, which is. What is it, as president and owner of Cobmex, do you find that you do throughout the year? Great question. Thanks, Rick. Thanks for having me. Um, one thing that I've tried to learn over the years is, is what areas of unique genius uh, I may possess. Um, they're, they're, I think one of the keys to managing a company is, of course, managing its largest asset, which is its people. And um, being a mentor, uh, providing motivation, and uh, inspiring people, and inspiring their passion for what they do on a day-to-day basis, and and a big part of that is identifying what each individual's unique area of genius is. Um, and you know, we have a mantra here: it delegate everything except personal genius. So people come in and they find their way with respect to the business and where they can add the most value and basically focus on that rather than try to you know, compensate for underdeveloped or areas or weaknesses, underdeveloped skills or weaknesses. Um, they focus on what they're good at. So as a result, you know, I've, I've managed to surround myself with really passionate people who are extremely good at what they do. I think that's been a, a huge key to our success. And it's not something it, it's it's easily spoken about or written about, but it's it's very difficult in its execution. We have to be realistic. Unfortunately, and something that I, I'm always battling, our industry is not necessarily a chosen career path. You don't have uh, kids getting out of university with degrees, waking up one morning and saying, you know, I want to sell long sleeve v-neck acrylic sweaters to the uniform industry. Well, how do you get people excited about that? Even though I am being a little self-deprecating when I say we do a lot more than just just long sleeve v-neck acrylic sweaters, but but essentially, you know, that's the foundation. How how do do you get people excited about selling, you know, a a poly viscose or a poly wool you know, tactical pants. So that's probably my biggest challenge. You know, I, I often get asked, you know, as a business owner, what keeps you up at night? I say, that's what keeps me up at night. How do I, you know, wake up in the morning, go into the office, confront our employees and inspire them? And I mean, it sounds kind of corny, but it's, it is the truth. I don't find this corny at all. You are warming my heart with your answer, Phil, because this is something 
that I'm passionate about as well. And I read about it and I listen to it. And the thought leaders um, like a Simon Sinek, you know, really speak directly to this in his books like Leaders Eat Last. And, you know, a good leader knows that they make others look good and that's their job. So your passion for helping your team be their best selves as your job is, to me, a fantastic answer. And it doesn't sound corny at all. It sounds contemporary. Not that I'm so magnanimous, because at the end of the day, I'm acutely aware of the fact that the better that everybody else is around me and the happier they are, the happier they're going to make me and the better they're going to make me look which I'm very fortunate to have happened over the last 24 years. I read one even just uh, this morning or yesterday or five years ago. Time is kind of funny these days, Phil. But uh, it said, uh, don't hire for skills, hire for attitude. Skills can be taught. It reminds me of what you're saying, your philosophy as a business owner and employer, because at the end of the day, like you're saying, one of the biggest things you have to do as a business owner is be an employer. And that is, that is for those that haven't done it, it is very challenging. There's no question. Uh, what did Steve Jobs say? Uh, we don't hire smart people to tell them what to do. We hire smart people so that they can tell us what to do. Yeah, we, we're taking pages out of the same books, Rick. You know, I mean, yeah, but even though, even though I will tell you that it's interesting without getting too altruistic. I don't even know if that's the right word, altruistic, but you know, without getting a little too, too touchy feely or that, or magnanimous, I, I find it's all a function of, you know, guiding principles of life, you know, and, and I'm not saying that, you know, our, our business is faith based because, you know, I'm a devout Jutheist, which is a, a topic for a whole other podcast. You know, believe it or not, there was a line in it book I read in high school called Steal This Book by Jerry Rubin, um, who was one of the Chicago Seven. And the line was really simple. It said, truth and honesty is self-awareness. That has basically has been my mantra my whole life. It hasn't always served me well, but from 30,000 feet and, you know, in the long run, it has served me very well. And I continue to guide what I do and how I conduct myself on a day-to-day basis with that mantra. So, I mean, they do say the road to hell is paved with good intentions, but I'd like to think otherwise. (laughs) So how did, you know, it started with you doing every job, speaking of being an employer. Um, and as an entrepreneur myself, I've been there, like you, you wear all hats, you're doing every job, and then slowly you start hiring, and you fill in other jobs, and what has, like, what was the origin, how come Phil started Copmex, and then how, you know, how did you decide to grow, and what areas did you decide would be a good idea to grow? You know, the short answer is this, Rick. You know, you never ask an entrepreneur to talk about his business unless he got five or six hours to kill. But I'll give you, as best I can, the Reader's Digest version. And I know most people out there, certainly the millennials, won't understand that, the context of that comment. But let's just say it's an abridged version of what happened. So I was in traditional apparel for, for 
about uh, about 15 years, uh, 15 plus years, and basically uh, was put out of business by NAFTA. And when I say put out of business by NAFTA, it wasn't that that all of a sudden, you know, I was making goods either in Canada or overseas and all of a sudden goods from Mexico started coming into the country. What happened was the Canadian retail industry, which is what I was servicing in those days, I was obliterated by the American retail industry because what happened was as our borders became a lot more transparent, a lot of the major retailers down in in the U.S. looked north of the 49th parallel and they saw a market you know that was the size of the state of california so as a result there was a huge influx of major u.s retailers that displaced most if not well at this point almost all of my customers so if you come up to to canada and go to any major mall or you know it's 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 basically it's u.s retail it's it's you know you you know, we, we go down into a, a mall down in the U.S., it's no different from a mall up in Canada. The same shops. There's very, there's, when I say a handful, you could probably count them all on hand in terms of Canadian retail chains that are still around. So basically, I didn't have customers left. Um, so I did what most people do who uh, feel really smart and good at what they do, but can't seem to find employment. I became a consultants. I did a lot of headhunting and I'll tell you that was a really valuable lesson because what people would do is they'd come to me and say, well, Phil, you have all this sales and merchandising experience in apparel. Can you help us put together a sales team or a design team or a product development team? And I would put the teams together for them and I'd, I'd go up and help them hire the people and they would pay me as they would a, a, a traditional uh, employment recruiter. That was really valuable because you got to hear everybody's story and and everybody has a story and it helps you formulate your story. But also my antenna were always up looking for an opportunity, obviously. And somebody came along who happened to be uh, my father-in-law, my brother-in-law, who were were selling school uniforms in California. They had a small little school uniform business in California. You might remember them, Rick. And... um, and they were setting up an office in Mexico. And knowing what I did, they, they tapped me on the shoulder and said, would you be willing to go down to Mexico to help us set up this office and hire the people and make sure we've got the right systems? Absolutely, I mean, you know, I do that for a living. I could do it, help my family out, right? So basically what happened was in the process, I, I met all these, you know, people who had production units, small production units of producing small lots of merchandise for the domestic Mexican market or the U.S. market. And at the time, they were just phasing in uh, the tariff allowances in the NAFTA agreement. And um, I took some samples back to Canada, showed them to some of my customers that I had in my previous life. And they said, you know, Phil, this is not traditional retail stuff, but, you know, it's very corporate, it's very uniform driven, it's cut and sew. So uh, I started knocking on a couple of those doors and everybody said the same thing to me. Uh, We don't book that, but if you have it on the shelf, we'll buy it. You know, the whole, you know, merchant adage, you can't sell from empty shelves. So I said, well, you know, am I in a position to take that? risk and then I looked at my personal finances and noticed I had 
$15,000 of credit open on a second mortgage on my house. So um, I thought, you know, maybe I'll, I'll buy some sweaters, you know, from one of these manufacturers, bring them up to Canada and see if I can sell them. So I went to my wife and explained the situation to her that we have approximately $15,000 of open credit on our second mortgage. And I'd like to buy sweaters in Mexico with that money. And she said, well, well, what will happen if it doesn't work? And I said to her, well, would you like fries with that? <laughs> Anyways, long story short, Rick, I bought about, uh, I don't know, it was 2,500 or 3,000 sweaters, whatever it was, I sold 5,000. I took the money, I bought 5,000 sweaters, I sold 8,000. On and on and on, that process took place. I was doing everything my, on my own. So, and that's how it started, a bit of an entrepreneurial fairy tale. Um, but interestingly, what happened was I was in the office one day in 2001. We had developed a little business where our, our major market was basically um, private security in Canada. Very small business. Once it's really small, it was maybe a part-time guy in the back, you know, part-time, you know, uh, young lady that would come in and help me with the invoicing and the admin stuff. And uh, every five minutes, uh, the guy in the back would be running in my office telling me, oh, we're sold out of this, we're sold out of that. And it was fourth quarter, 2001. And I went, hmm, what's going on? And then I realized there was this huge increase in the demand for uniform security, huge, as a result of 9-11. So, you know, there was that sort of generation, generational defining, you know, event that that was like, and, and I, I don't feel mercenary because I was already in the business. <laughs> you know, a lot of people decided to go into the business as a result. I was already in the business. But I did say to myself, if this is happening here in Canada, what's going on down in the U.S.? Well, um, interestingly enough, you know, I did a little research and, and in those days, uh, I was considered fairly tech savvy. I went online, did tons of research and, and tripped over an association called the National Association of Uniform Manufacturers and Distributors, the NAUMD with offices in New York. So I called up and the gentleman who answered the phone uh, said, where are you? I said, well, I'm in my office. Where's your office? Uh, and I'm in Toronto. He said, well, we don't have any Canadian members. I said, well, that's fine. Uh, can I come to your show? Well, we don't, you could attend the show, but we, we don't have Canadian. We don't like, you know, this is an American association. I said, hmm, okay, well, I was ready for that type of reaction being from Canada. So I put down the phone, filled out a registration form with my brother-in-law's address who happened to live in LA. So I went down and I went to the first show, walked around, met a few people. And that was in February, 2002. And in April, 2002, received a phone call uh, asking for samples as a result of people that I met at the show. Um, one thing led to another. Um, I received an order that was equivalent to all the business I did in a single year in Canada. One order. Um, needless to say, I didn't have the money to finance it. I didn't have the wherewithal, but I took the order. 
And I executed it because you drop an entrepreneur from the top of the building and he'll figure out a way to land softly. Basically, you know, I'm making it sound real easy, but man, oh man, a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of uh, traveling and, you know, eating dust at the side of the road, uh, you know, doing, um, you know, QAs in, in Laredo, uh, not the, you know, not the most glamorous, but we got her done. And that helped sort of catapult us to a little bit more notoriety. And, and at the time, um, uh, I, I had to ship the goods through uh, my brother-in-law's little company in, uh, in LA. And um, eventually by 2004, late 2004, we set up a company in the US, our own company. And uh, 2005 was our first year in business in the U.S. And now, Cubmex is in how many countries? We have a pretty strong foundation in the U.K., a very strong foundation in Israel, in the Middle East. We are shipping various countries in the EU, depending on, but, you know, our base in Europe was, at one point, the U.K., but, of course, Brexit threw a bit of a wrench into that, but... Uh, do you think, Phil, that the lesson that you learned from your, you know, your trips to Mexico, working with your family business in California, and setting all of that up and following those paths, educated you in a specific way to then start doing a business overseas? Was that helpful? Yeah, I think what was more important was uh, what I'd done in my previous life in the traditional apparel business. My business was tying up brands in Europe and bringing them to Canada. Um, so I would type a brand, get exclusive rights to that brand in Canada, and we would market that to the retailers in Canada. Um, something that was, was pretty popular back in the, uh, I don't want to say what decade it was, but uh, it was some sometime in the 1900s. Yeah, I tried to do that in the States too. It was not it was not as easy to do in the US. I think, you know, in those days, culturally, uh, as Canadians, we were a little bit more um, open to product and concepts and brands from overseas than you know uh, we were in the US. So an interesting thing about the uniform space, as opposed to the fashion space, which you do have a unique perspective because you've operated in both now for um, however many years will admit to. So, uh, but someone described it to me this way, saying that the uniform industry is unique because wherever in the world we are manufacturing these goods, the brands remain U.S. brands within the uniform industry. You do not find a Mitsubishi uniform or a, you know, a, a Kia uh, uniform company. It's still a domestic brand and message, even though we're manufacturing in, um, you know, uh, just about every other country except the U.S. <laughs> what happens there is there aren't a lot of markets outside of the U.S. where those brands have a lot of uh, impact or, or credibility. Um, I look at a company like Blauer. Blauer has has made inroads in in the EU. I you know I was in Italy and uh, we were going to the uh, the glass factory there. It's, you know in, in Venice, and 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 the tour guide was wearing you know uh, 
a Blower US quarter zip sweatshirt. They've marketed themselves as, as a lifestyle brand, not as a uniform brand. And, and, and the US uniform brands mean very little in Europe because, well, this is a whole other topic, a whole other podcast, right? But one of the things that my experience working with these brands in Europe was uh, taught me was, was the value of a brand. And, and, and going back to my early experience breaking into the market, one of the first things I did was because we had a, a, a unique way of working with our mills. And I knew that, that, you know, the more control we had over our manufacturing process, the more successful we'd be. So we got involved even down to working with fiber suppliers globally and then working with the spinners and doing the, the, the appropriate you know, scientific research with respect to the spinning, the backwinding, the, the, the temperature of the plates as we're spinning and the type of fiber that we use. Once we came up with, you know, <clears throat> our formula um, that we, you know, and which, you know, was, goes a lot further than it's a fiber, it's a spinning, it's a knitting, it's every step of the way <clears throat> we branded Durapil and Durapil Ultra, which are, 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 are two different types of, of, of treatments that we use in, in yarns and in, in, in the spinning of the yarn and the processing that gives us slightly unique, maybe even a more uh, contemporary hand feel, drape and appearance to the garments that we produce and ship. So, so basically what we did was we promoted those brands, Durapil. And, you know, there was a little method to the madness there because I knew one of the things that drove a lot of bigger chunks of business in our industry, especially on the uh, corp, um, the, the blue goods side, was RFPs, specs. And we knew that all they had to do was mention our brand in their RFP. The, and that, you know, and I was right because people would call up and say, oh, I've got, you know, an RFP for I'd, I'd like to bid on it. And it says that, you know, you are known to be uh, supply a product called Durapil. And I said, well, not only do we supply it, but we own the brand. We are, you know, we own. And um, so that got us into a lot of doors, a lot of doors. And, it, and also, you know, and you talk about branding. Here's the thing, when, when I, my objective when I went into the U.S. market was because at that particular point in time, you know, the Canadian market, even though we've got 10% or maybe a little bit more, but 10 to 15% of the population as the, the United States has, the market for sweaters is not 10 times greater. And because, you know, you have to figure that we're, you, you're going to certainly sell a lot more sweater north of the Mason-Dixon line, than you know, south of the Mason-Dixon line, that only stands to reason, um, where there is a tremendous uh, percentage of U.S. population. You've got three of the four large states in the country there, right, between California, Texas, and Florida. Am I correct? So, so basically, um, what had happened in Canada, we got to a point where in the uniform industry and the, our industry 
in North America. I'm not even saying it's you could put your arms around it. We're not a huge industry, but I think we're a vital and 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 tight knit community of interest that um, certainly um, we look after each other and and we are certainly cognizant of the the, the big picture. To I think to a greater extent than a lot of other industries, and that that might be a very shallow statement on my behalf, you know, on my part, but it's just something I noticed. Anyways, but what happened in Canada was in the uniform industry. Whenever what whenever anybody would talk about sweaters, and let's face it, sweaters are not exactly a core item in any uniform program, and we know that. But if you mention the word sweaters in the uniform industry. The name Cobmex would be the first name out of anybody's mouth. And I said, I want that in the United States. That's what I want in the U.S. And how am I going to get it? You know, and that was the, the challenge. And that was how, how, how do we create that, that perception, that brand perception and, and that, the notoriety. And, and, you know, it really is for us, it's all about brand, and we've taken that brand and that notoriety and everything that goes behind it, which is another whole other podcast, to Europe and the Middle East, and backed it up by, you know, walking the walk, so to speak. Let's face it, 85% of what we do in our business is service. And Phil, um, the concept that the, the specification document overtly naming your brand or your process or your treatment or whatever the criteria you want to use, um, being a key ingredient in winning in the U.S., has that proven true in the Middle East and Europe as well? Uh, no. You know, the beauty of it is being, you know, establishing these beachheads is great in terms of reinforcing our brand globally and obviously adding value to our brand but it teaches us a lot teaches us a lot about substance and the different business models and how the different business models vary from country to country And, and not only is it is it important and interesting and valuable to to increase the value of the brand and build up the brand but it's it's just so interesting and it's so fulfilling, you know, when you, you know, you're walking through an airport in the UK and you see, you know, the security guards wearing one of your sweaters or you go into a, a you know, a fast food restaurant in, um, I don't know, Hungary and you see, you know, one of the managers wearing your, you know, I, I mean, I'm not saying I've been to Hungary to a fast food restaurant in Hungary, but, but you know what I'm saying, you know, I, I used to joke around about how um, our inf- we used to go on info trips. Info trips would be, you know, where we do the markets, you know, for the fashion business. You know, you'd go Premier Vision, uh, Interstoff, uh, um, no, it would be, sorry, uh, Pity Filotti, uh, Interstoff and Premier Vision. And, you you know, you'd go to Paris, Milan, London, and, you know, and you'd shop the stores and you'd go to fashion shows and you'd walk, you know, and you'd, do all this really cool, glamorous stuff. And then when I would speak to some of my old colleagues from a previous life, they'd say, so we're, you know, where do you do your research? At the gas station, at the post office, at the airport, you know. So, you know, I get to the airport. I, I don't have to get on a plane to do my info trip. I just, just get my car and drive home. 
Um, but but it's so interesting and fascinating to see the differences in 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 the approach and, and the mindset with respect to uniform programs and how they're managed from country to country. And there are very acute differences, very acute differences. But and so that was a big learning curve to start migrating. Uh, yeah, it, it, there was definitely a learning curve. Um, but our business model is unique in the sense that, you know, we sell, I don't know how to say this, and Jonathan always, you know, gets upset with me when I say this. Because sweaters aren't usually a core item, although we found that to be different in parts of Europe, for sure, where they will build a uniform program around a sweater, especially with sweaters as good as ours. What what happens is is here, the uniform program, the sweater's not usually a core item. So how can I say this? We sell a uh, an accessory item in a sort of, not fringe marketplace or peripheral marketplace, but, you know, it's not, you know, it's not like you're selling sweaters to the fashion industry, you know, or to the retail trade where you could sell, you know, millions and millions of sweaters because of the, the level of consumption that's there. But, but in the uniform industry, like I said, it's always, it's usually just an accessory piece. So what happens is it's it's not doesn't become a, a, a focus for the dealer distributor. So so we'll take that off the table for them with respect to making it easy for them. We want to make it easy for them. We want to make their jobs easier, and we want to do it in such a way where it doesn't cost them that much. So the bottom line is, you know, you know, you might pay ten percent more, but you're you're at the end of the day you're level of efficiency in your economies of scale are going to improve by 20%. That's basically the concept. That's what we try to do. And having this experience and seeing it in so many different countries um, certainly helps us add value at the end of the day. The Jonathan you were referring to is Jonathan Edberg, who is uh, lists himself as executive vice president at Cobmex, but I know that the two of you have worked together for 16 plus years on the company at this point. And um, you travel a lot together. Are you both going overseas? Less so now. I mean, you know, I, Jonathan's runway is certainly a lot longer than mine. Um, I, I knew uh, <clears throat> Jonathan's mom years ago. She was actually a customer of mine. She was a buyer. And, and, uh, and I knew Jonathan when he was in a store. Basically, uh, he was looking for a job. He just finished uh, high school and he was thinking of going to university. He wanted to be a, a lawyer, actually. He would have been a great lawyer. And he came to me uh, to, you know, sling boxes in the warehouse one summer. And that was back in um, 2004. So it's 17 years ago. And this is a podcast, so they can't see your offices, but you surround yourself with rock and roll memorabilia, paraphernalia. I'm not sure that everyone knows secretly you are a rock star. Well, this is this this is you know I, I don't know if it's part of our culture or part of you know kind of what creates a fun in, in, in our business and in, in the work environment that we have here. But when I was a kid, I you know I played music in high school. I was in a band, you know. In the old days, you were either you know 
a rocker or a jock, you know, you're either in a band and, 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 and I was in a band, but I was also, you know, uh, sixth man on the high school basketball team. So, you know, I, they, they couldn't, both sides couldn't figure out who I was, but, but at the end of the day, what happened was, um, I played guitar all through high school and university and music was my minor. I got married, got a job, had kids and I was guess I was about 25 years old and, and I had a guitar that I put in my cupboard in my closet and took it out about I guess about 15 years later where I gave it to um, one of my uh, cousin's kids because uh, he was interested in playing guitar so I didn't even have a guitar so that was I was about 25 um, in 2006 a few months before my 50th birthday, myself and some high school friends got together and we did a, a pilgrimage. We flew down, we met in Memphis and we rented a van and we drove down Highway 61 to the Mississippi Delta to New Orleans. And it was, you know, 10 days of juke joints and honky tonks. And, and we did this all because we were all turning 50 that year. And that was a, a promise we'd made it to ourselves, you know, earlier. I hadn't really picked up a guitar and played it kind of seriously or spent any time playing for close to 25 years and um and on the trip they uh they went into a walmart and bought a cheap old guitar and they all signed it and they said you know the biggest mistake you ever made was when you stopped playing guitar you really should have kept playing i still had a, a harmonica i used to play some blues harp my dad was a harmonica player and he taught me and introduced me to sanitarium brian and mcgee also a topic for another podcast but bottom line was um interesting as i, as I mentioned it was 2006 i left the guitar with uh, some friends we'd made in new orleans because it just really wasn't worth anything it was a cheap you know 35 for you know walmart guitar that we were just fooling around with but for my 50th birthday my friends all got together and presented me with a nice guitar which I still have and I still play today and one thing led to another and I started playing more often and I got involved in a community of interest here in Toronto with you know sort of basement jammers and you know frustrated musicians in the same situation as me obviously it's some obviously all of them a lot better than me but uh, and got into the habit of jamming a few times so we set up a studio and uh, started also building a, a small collection. I have what my wife calls gas, and gas is guitar acquisition syndrome. Uh oh. My biggest fear in my life is my when I when I die, my wife is going to sell my guitar collection for what I told her I paid for it. <laughs> but kidding aside, and getting back to the business side of things. What I found really interesting is if, if, if I were to pick one period of time where my business seemed to turn the corner and really flourish, it was the time I rediscovered music. And, and I think that's so important. And that's so important for people to understand that there's the whole concept of business and doing business on a daily basis. And of course, we all know what the end game is when we get up in the morning and go to work. But approaching your day-to-day -day activities and approaching your business 
with a degree of mindfulness and understanding the concept of balance and, and, and what, what constitutes a balance in your life. Because if all that's important to you and all that defines you is a struggle for legal tender, you're going to be really miserable. So, the, you know, when, when you talk about culture and you talk about in, in, in relation to our business, there's one thing I can tell you about us and our company and people will tell you in the industry, and you could probably attest to this. We're a fun company. And when I say a fun company, people like doing business with us. We like doing business with them. We want the business process to be enjoyable. And if it's not, and there's any degree of, of or any element of, any mercenary element that comes into a business transaction in any given day, we tend to walk away from it. What does that mean? You know, could we be a bigger company? Could we be more successful? Could we be more profitable? I don't know. And I really don't care. I just know that we're defined by how we make people feel and how they make us feel. That's, you know, that, that's how we want to be defined in terms of when we do business. And again, not to be too touchy-feely, but at the end of the day, going back to our original conversation about creating passion and, and, and being a successful business owner, the only way you're going to be a successful business owner is, as I said, going back is, is by taking care of your biggest asset. Your biggest asset are, is your people. If your people care about you, you will be successful. But the only way that your people will care about you is if you care about them. And, you know, unfortunately, you, you just, and again, being a headhunter, and again, this is one area that I get very involved in. I still get very involved in the recruiting of employees, you know, be they somebody who's coming in to, to, to work in distribution or in accounting or in sales before the final decision is made somebody from HR ultimately comes into my office, drops a resume on my desk and says, can you do me a favor and meet this person on the only bank? So, you know, again, there's that unique genius that I keep referring to. One thing I want to add to what you've been talking about, because this is another circle that I travel in related to the arts as well, but I'm not involved in the music uh, uh, my first passion, much like you and music, was for the performing arts. So I'm actively involved in the performing arts and in specifically in the improv, improvisation world. Uh, and there is a uh, Dr. Stuart Brown, I will quote, as saying, the opposite of play is depression. And I believe that as a business leader, that's a valuable lesson that you are embracing instinctually, that your take on it and from personal experience, you found that, hey, when I was more playful in my own life, it helped me in all aspects of my life. And that the fact that you're saying, well, I want to bring that culturally to my business as well. Not that we want to walk away from a deal because it's not fun. That's not, you know, many times a business challenge can be really fun to figure out and solve and overcome. Getting over those hurdles, turning over that rock and saying, oh, wow, look what I just found. Well, let's have some fun and try and solve this one, right? But 
the, the, what you're saying is fun as opposed to mercenary, as opposed to, hey, if it's solely about making five cents or losing five cents, that's not the customer we want. That's not the supplier we want. We want to know that they embrace the values that, we've, that we have, that they embrace the, the humanness, the mindfulness. So um, I'm all in. Phil, you got me. Where do I apply? But one thing I, I have to say, Rick, you know, and, and, and this is, a, I think, an interesting side note to my experience going into the NEUMD. I was fortunate about three years ago at our conference in St. Louis to tell the story of how, you know, I was not exactly welcome at the NEUMD in 2002. And there we were, a, I think it was 2000. 2018 in St. Louis, 16 years later at the conference, and I was the chairman, you know, and it, it's something that, that, that I, I am proud of it, but, but also, it, it, you know, it speaks to, you know, how I felt about the association. I mean, obviously, having a good experience the first time I went in, even though I was not welcome, I walked away from there with a big chunk of business. And a very uh, pivotal moment in the in the, the the lifeline of this business. It's been a really rewarding experience, and and not only not only has it been rewarding from a business point of view, but from a personal point of view. I've made great friends. I've had great relationships, and um, the NEUMD conference is something everybody in our you know we usually have a pretty big contingent. We bring you know, an average four to five people every year to the conference. And they all walk away with the same feeling, <clears throat> the same experience and the same sense of pride in terms of, you know, being associated with, with the company and also being involved in the uniform industry. And, um, and you know, I, that's something that, that <clears throat> we wear on our sleeves quite proudly. Well, on behalf of the association, I thank you, Phil, because as you're expressing, and I'll quickly summarize, from back at the top of this podcast, you mentioned that you first called a association called the National Association of Uniform Manufacturers and Distributors, and many in our industry credit Phil Newman and Cobmex with moving that association to become the North American Association of Uniform Manufacturers and Distributors, and we now have a number of Canadian members. Interestingly, I am meeting tomorrow with someone from Mexico who is interested in joining, and we have uh, certainly um, more presence known overseas because of Phil Newman. Your role on the board has been extraordinary. Your uh, leadership has been extraordinary. You really helped take the association to uh, the next level in many ways. And one of them, as you're pointing out, which is quit uh, stopping at the border, <laughs> that uh, especially when our borders overlap or touch, um, it is crazy not to um, be uh, having the associate, the industry be a one for all, all for one across the entire continent. So we're definitely appreciative of that. And I'm glad you mentioned that as part of, of this podcast. Phil Newman from Cobmex, really appreciate you spending time with us. Today. Hey, it's my pleasure. 